This is now being taught at Stanford and other top schools. This explanation of the beginning of the universe, this article says, bears haunting similarity to the traditional theological notion of creation out of nothing. Listen, this article quoted one of the world's foremost astronomers, Alan Sandage, of the observatories of the Carnegie Institution in Pasadena. He recently proposed that the Big Bang could only be understood as, quote, a miracle, end quote, in which some higher force must have played a role. There has to be an explanation for how the universe got here and who or what caused it. Where the disagreement lies is what is that cause? As Christians, we understand that there was an eyewitness to the creation. Someone was there when it happened, and that was God. He was there, and he was the cause. We're learning about creation today, but not from Genesis. Today on Wisdom for the Heart, Stephen Davy takes us to a passage of Scripture in Job. He's going to show you with clarity that God is the creator of water, earth, and sky. Keep listening. Perhaps uh, the best-known scientific celebrity of the past couple of decades was Carl Sagan. He was a renowned astronomer and uh, a rather antagonistic uh, atheist who seemed bent on destroying any belief in biblical creationism and uh, theism. He became the leading voice of a naturalism, that everything has a natural cause and a natural uh, explanation. His tribe has certainly increased over the years. In fact, if I can take an aside to this introduction, I recently read one religious leader within the church, his attempt to explain away the miracle of Jesus walking on the water by postulating that Christ was walking on floating pieces of ice. How do you suggest that to keep a straight face is my question. But that's naturalism. It's relative is evolution. That all there is can be explained by natural processes. Listen to what Carl Sagan repeated on every show that aired on television each week. And I quote, The universe is all that is or ever was or ever will be. In other words, he gave to the universe divine attributes. Listen, all the scientists in the world, along with Sagan, could never scientifically measure all that was and all that is and all that ever shall be or is to come. That's a, that's a profound statement of faith. And they take the leap of faith in attribute or attribute, I should say, omniscience and omnipotence, these attributes of God to the universe or to Mother Nature so that she gives birth. She sustains all it is. She orders life. She created all there is. It's nothing less than the religion of nature. This is the deification of the universe. And it really doesn't get rid of of an omniscient eternal being. It just changes who that being happens to be. Sagan looked at the universe and all those like him and came to the conclusion that there is nothing greater than what they can see, that it is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. 
you know, it occurred to me as I was researching for this study today that if you fell asleep, not now, (laughs) wait 30 minutes. If you fell asleep 75 years ago and woke up today to learn of our politically correct uh, views regarding origins and the evolution of man and the deification of nature, you would be convinced that our intelligence is not moving or developing forward, it is moving backward. It's true. Paul said it would be a sign of intellectual digression in any culture to cast off the creator and elevate or deify creation. Paul wrote in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they literally digressed to becoming fools or foolish. And so today, for people in our world to consider a tree or the sun to be a self-conscious, self-aware relative of the human race is simply one more step downward and away from true wisdom, isn't it? Let me give you a couple of examples. Two recent transcripts that came across uh, NPR, National Public Radio. These were related to a journalistic contest I had read about, and so I went online and found several of these articles. They invited people to express their values and beliefs. One elderly woman who grew up just like you did and I did in a mainline Protestant church most of her life, now retired, wrote, and I quote, I am sitting on our small deck, knitting and resting old legs, entertained by my spiritual sister nearby, an equally old pine tree. She is at least as old as I am. She leans a bit, and so do I. We both soak in the sun and the air and try our best to live lightly in our worlds. One day in the not-too-distant future, she will fall and fertilize the earth, and so will I. It's a consoling thought. What exactly was consoling about that thought? I do not know. She writes, I have lost my traditional heaven and hell beliefs. There are those who want to give my life more importance than the tree, but I don't believe them. Never mind she's sitting on a wooden deck writing this. They think that there is a special place for me somewhere in eternity, but I don't believe them. I believe my tree and all other living things believe and feel in their particular living way. 75 years ago, you would have said, are you kidding? Today, it's ho-hum. Another This author, a published poet and professor at the University of New Mexico, writes in her article dated July 8th, 2007, I believe in the sun, S-U-N. In the tangle of human failures of fear, greed, and forgetfulness, the sun gives me clarity. The sun is our relative and illuminates our path on this earth. Humans are vulnerable and rely on the kindnesses of earth and sun. Do you hear how creation is given divine attributes? Humans rely on the kindnesses of the earth and the sun. She writes, One day recently I walked out of a hotel room I was in, just off Times Square, at dawn, to find the sun. It was the fourth morning since the birth of my fourth granddaughter. 
I had bundled her up and carried her outside. I held her up and presented her to the son so that she would be recognized as a relative, so that she wouldn't forget this connection, this promise, so that we all remember the sacredness of life. End quote. How tragic to not understand that to give the Son the attributes of God is to void the sacredness of life. Mankind to the naturalist and the evolutionist is nothing more than an animal with no more dignity and personal worth than a pine tree. Uh, Paul wrote of this in Romans 1. The unbeliever becomes futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart is darkened. Why? They suppress the truth of a creator and they elevate creation. Romans 1, 21 to 23. In 1996, Carl Sagan died. Less than three weeks before he died, he was interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Sagan, by the way, knew he was dying. He knew it. And Ted Koppel asked him, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would like to give to the human race? To which Sagan responded bleakly, and I quote him, We live on a hunk of rock and metal, circling a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars in the Milky Way, this is well worth pondering, end quote. Is that it? Yes, it is. Because the religion of naturalism and the faith in evolution and even the mystical reaches of pantheism lead ultimately to the utter insignificance of humanity, which ultimately leads to despair. All you and those trees are going to die as eventually fall over and rot and fertilize some plot of ground. I want you to listen to the despair and the sense of insignificance and, and a little bit of panic from a book published, written by Sagan, published near the end of his life. By the way, this doesn't get any press. You probably never heard this before. Hear it now. I quote, Our planet is a speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come to save us from ourselves. End quote. If only he had read Job. There is help there is hope because there is a creator, God. Let's rejoin our study in chapter 38 where God eventually speaks to Job, this encounter we have longed for and fully expected because we probably looked ahead. The amazing thing is, as we began last Lord's Day, I believe it was, that God begins not by giving Job a lesson on suffering, but by giving Job, a lesson on creationism. Instead of answering Job's questions and ours about why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people, God reveals his power and his providence over everything that he has created. Evidently, to the mind of, of God, understanding that he alone is the creator of all that is brings a person back from the edge of despair and utter insignificance and bitterness and breathes new perspective and fresh faith 
into his heart. Which leads me to say, and I need to say it, that these chapters here are for believers, not unbelievers. These chapters, this response by God won't breathe faith into the unredeemed. In fact, all they'll do is look at it and come up with more skepticism. But for those of us who believe, like Job, this tour around God's creation bolsters our faith and gives us fresh new joy in the greatness and glory of God, which has a way then of settling our, our fears and, and quieting our hearts because God said that he would keep us in perfect peace, that is to the ones whose minds are stayed, anchored on him. Isaiah 26, 3. So God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. Let's go back at verse 4. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Would you notice that God doesn't begin four chapters of his response by proving to Job that he was the one who created the earth? He simply starts by reminding Job that he wasn't there when he did it. Just as all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we have no proof of God. We simply are introduced to him. We are introduced to what he does and who he is. God is the eyewitness to the beginning. And because of what we call special revelation, that is this inspired book, you hold I trust in your lap, that you're looking at, the, the inspired scriptures have given us the only eyewitness accounts of the very beginning, the origins of time from the creator himself. God just simply starts by saying, Job, were you there? When it started, no. He doesn't expect Job to say, well, I think I could pull off that stuff if you give me billions of years. No, it's just a simple, no, I wasn't there. I didn't see you do it. This is the eyewitness account of origins. It was, by the way, a man by the name of Herbert Spencer, who was an early enthusiastic supporter of Darwin, who outlined five scientific ideas that are certainly true that he believed categorized everything that science could investigate. Time, force, action, space, and matter. He believed that everything that could be known could fit into one of these five categories. However, as with all naturalistic dead-end theories, he had to give at least one of those five eternality. The evolutionists cannot account for the origin of any of these five, so one of them had to have been eternal in order to spawn the other four, so to speak. Even though he couldn't account for the origin of time, force, action, space, and matter, he believed correctly that these five can categorize everything. So you go all the way back to what God tells Job he didn't see happen, and you have fully described, or just enough for us to understand, here they were, in the beginning. That's time. In the beginning, God. That's force. In the beginning, God created. That's action. In the beginning, God created the heavens. That's space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's matter. In those few opening words, God reveals the origin that provide the categories for everything 
that is, so that Nehemiah, centuries later, the rebuilder of Jerusalem, would, would pray in chapter 9, you alone are Yahweh. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. Now, in these first 15 verses of Job 38, God is going to quiz Job on the origins and workings of earth, sea, and sky. First, earth. Job asks, or is asked by God, back in verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since I'm sure you know. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases or its foundations sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? See, God is speaking in the language of an architect and a builder. I know just enough to be amazed as I have watched these buildings go up. I have watched as this language was fulfilled on this particular plot of about 40 acres of of land. I have watched the surveyors line it out, trace it. A measuring line, God refers to here, the call in the Hebrew language, is stretched out to ensure the exact measurements uh, are followed. Well, who made, Job is asked, sure that the foundations are, are dug correctly? I've watched the guys out here. It's amazing what they can do with that backhoe. Lay them out, and, and then they're, they're poured. Well, who did it here, Job? Were you there? Did you see it? When the cornerstone was was placed squarely. In other words, what God is asking Job is, did you check the blueprints to make sure that all of this uh, occurred with such precision that, that life could be sustained? Of course, Job has already delivered to us the staggering truth relative to creation in chapter 26, verse 7, where he said that God stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth on Nothing, not on the back of a huge turtle, as millions believe, not on the back of an elephant, as even more millions believe, not on the shoulders of Atlas, as former empires believed. Nothing. Uh, Job is revealing amazing scientific truth that we now have been able to substantiate. The north-pointing axis of the earth is extended indefinitely beyond the boundaries of earth's surface, pointing to the the, the, the polar star and orienting both the, the geography of earth with the stellar heavens. One believing scientist writes, Job is telling us not only that the earth was suspended in space, but also that it rotates about its north projecting axis, maintained in its orbit by this, what we still know to be a mysterious force called the law of what? Gravity, which could just as rationally be called Nothing, or better yet, for the believer, the will of God. Since no human being was there to see God do it, you either believe the record of God or you come up with your own man-made theory. It is interesting, however, to live long enough to hear that theories such as the rock-solid theory, the Big Bang, has developed over time. In fact, in our generation, cracks. Not that it was ever easy to believe. In one particular book that I'm reading called The Battle for the Beginning, as John MacArthur cataloged a lot of this, he, he writes of the scientists who hold to the Big Bang Theory have to explain, of course, how a universe full of matter appeared out of nowhere in an instant. He, he quotes from an article in the Los Angeles Times that was fascinating. 
And I quote, the Big Bang Theory is looking more supernatural all the time. About 20 years ago, the late Carl Sagan famously said that the Big Bang science would eventually show that the universe was created without a creator. Since then, the picture has changed quite a bit. Now there is a growing theory within Big Bang thinking called cosmic inflation. This holds that the entire universe popped out of a point with no content, no dimensions, expanding instantaneously, first quickly, then it slowed somewhat miraculously to its current size. This is now being taught at Stanford, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and other top schools. This explanation of the beginning of the universe, this article says, bears haunting similarity to the traditional theological notion of creation out of nothing. Listen, this article quoted one of the world's foremost astronomers, Alan Sandage, of the observatories of the Carnegie Institution in Pasadena. He recently proposed that the Big Bang could only be understood as, quote, a miracle, end quote, in which some higher force must have played a role. Isn't that great? But can you imagine being Carl Sagan? You've only been dead 11 years. And they're already coming up. Now they're teaching at MIT and the Carnegie Institute saying the Big Bang didn't uh, remove the necessity of a divine being. It's proving the necessity of an original cause that it poofed out of nowhere (laughs) at at a point in time by some creator. If you want to know how the world began, you must get the information from the only source that tells us. No human observed the process. No human can repeat the process. Now, a little later on in this creative handiwork, there are other eyewitnesses. Look at verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In Job chapter 1, the sons of God are a reference to, to angels who came to present themselves, and Satan was among them. This is poetic parallelism. The the morning stars are the same individuals as the sons of God in this text. In fact, according to the account given in Genesis 1, physical stars that you see in the sky were not created until the fourth day. So the angels had to have been created prior to that in order to observe it and to sing to the glory of God when it occurred. In Exodus 20, we're told there's, there's addition to the testimony of Genesis 1 that everything that was created was created within the six days of creation. So angels weren't created eons before uh, the creation of earth. They then, we believe, were created perhaps on the first day so that they could have been around to sing glory to God during the creation of earth that would occur a few days later. The hosts of heaven, the angels, created, mature, fully capable, able to sing glory to God. There's no more stretch of the imagination in that than Adam and Eve being created, fully mature, not as little babies that grew up, who learned how to walk, who learned how to talk. No, they immediately were able to communicate and worship God. They were able to carry on their God-given assignment And so also the angels were created, fully capable to sing and communicate and do their creator's bidding. It's interesting, 
John Hartley wrote in his New International Commentary on Job, in ancient times, the laying of a foundation stone for a temple was a high occasion. It was commemorated by singing and music and and praise. So God here informs Job and us that on the occasion of laying the cornerstone of earth, of creating matter, the angels were assembled in an angelic chorus to sing praise to God at this high moment, to sing to his glory for the creation of his world. Job, you weren't there, were you? You can believe the record of my eyewitness account. I was there. Now God quizzes Job. He moves from the origin of earth to questions regarding the sea. Look at verse 8. Job, who has enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band. I placed boundaries on it, set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Wow. Several ancient Near Eastern myths that attempt to explain the origin of the sea, the oceans of our world, such as the Enuma Elish from the Babylonian Chronicles or the Baal cycle from the Ugarit. They recount this fierce battle, though different they are similar, in that they talk about the gods battling for control over the sea, the oceans of the world. And, and, and epic battles took place for the gods and, and goddesses to control the, this massive body of water. In total contrast to mythical thought, you notice the sea here in Job 38 is spoken of as a newborn baby. An infant, verse 8, God put a, put a diaper of darkness on it, clothed it with pajamas made of clouds, verse 9. Verse 10, put him in a playpen, put up the baby gate, locked it. Verse 11, placed restrictions that the, the sea immediately submitted to. For God said, thus, verse 11, you shall come, but no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. No epic battle. God won. He's the creator. This infinite, or seemingly to us, body of water is under his control, and he determines how it acts. He has instituted all the necessary causes and secondary causes to keep the tides of these bodies of water within his plan to care for the ecosystems of our our planet. It's interesting now science is catching up with what God is describing to Job. Stephen's going to stop here because we're running up against the end of our broadcast for today. But if you join us again next time, you'll hear the conclusion to this lesson called Water, Earth, and Sky. You've tuned in to Wisdom for the Heart with Stephen Davey. You might want to visit our website because you can go back and listen to anything you missed. We post all of Stephen's messages there and you can access them anytime 
at wisdomonline.org. While you're there, we have a resource especially for moms. Stephen has a booklet called Motherhood in a Variety of Settings. Mothers are consistently underpaid, often undervalued, and many times taken for granted. This booklet offers words of encouragement to moms. Visit wisdomonline.org forward slash mom to get your copy. Then join us next time on Wisdom for the Heart.